Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Uh, I'm so glad you're with us today. Wilkie could not be with us on this episode. He is in the process of touring his brand new school that's about to open in Houston. But I am thrilled, so excited to have a conversation today with Justin Campbell. Justin, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you guys for having me on today. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm so glad we got to connect. Um, you know, connected with you through Instagram and, and through your book and we were really striving um, to get more more men on our podcast. We've primarily had women, and we know that's kind of the case because women are primarily in in education. You know, the the primary teaching force is women, but we're always we're always glad to uh, to have another male teacher, male educator on the podcast because we we really believe that it's you know we we need to get more men into the classrooms. So, so yeah, man, we're super excited and, and, you know, with, with our podcast, Justin, all we're really trying to do is, is put as much of the authentic teacher voice out there as we can. Cause you know, we, we know that, um, there's a lot more great things going on in classrooms than ever really get talked about or, or teachers get credit for. So our podcast is just us trying to do our part to really, shine a, a light on on the great things that teachers are doing and we're we're thrilled to have you be a part of it <laughs> absolutely so so to get started um could you just give our listeners a little bit of your background um you know growing up and and your background in education and and how it got to got you to what you're doing now so i was uh, i was born and raised in detroit michigan um my parents were, you know, hardworking parents. My mom was always an educator. Grandma's an educator. So I grew up around um, that type of mentality of giving back to the youth and, and raising the next generation to come up. So I've been working with youth, youth since I was 11 years old. Um, even being one of the youth, I was still volunteering, working at a, a, a summer camp called People's Ilac Summer Program. It was a, a, a summer camp in Detroit that was started by my mother and grandmother. And, um, you know, obviously being a, a child of someone who started a program like that, I get, you know, a little more perks. So I, I probably shouldn't have been working with youth at 11, but my mother felt like I was ready. So that's where it started. Um, after doing that, I went to college and I was always good at math. And I don't know why I was running away from my calling, but I started off trying to be an engineer. And the more and more I went to engineering classes, the more I realized I'm running away from what I should be doing in life. So I went back, um, I switched my major back to, to secondary education. I graduated with a degree in mathematics and a minor in communications. And I began teaching actually in Michigan and then moved out to Arizona and taught here uh, for a few years. After, after teaching in Arizona, um, my wife and I actually saw the disconnect that many teachers had as far as a bridge connecting wherever they they are coming from to where they currently are. So uh, for myself, coming from Michigan and began teaching in, in Phoenix, there was no one really helping me with that transition. Obviously, I got there and there may have been mentors to help with the content and things like that, but there are a lot of things that I wasn't cautioned about and that I didn't prepare myself for going into the classroom. Now, I lasted because I had other experiences that I could draw upon, but we also saw other teachers who didn't have those experiences 
who end up coming in, they have the heart for teaching, the heart for going into inner city schools and working with kids and making sure that they can be what they, they what they all they uh, can be in life, and they end up quitting because it's just too much for them to handle, and they didn't have anyone to mentor them along the way. So that's when um, I stepped away from teaching. My wife and I started the Urban Connection Project in October of 2014. I became a math consultant because we were doing a lot of free work at the time. I became a math consultant at Pearson Education. And in 20, February of 2016, we went full-time with Urban Connection Project. And so that's what we're doing now. We actually work to help mentor uh, teachers and educators who want to work in inner-city schools. We, we prepare them for the things that they'll be, um, they'll be working with and dealing with in the classroom. And then we mentor them along the way, obviously, to whatever degree their administration sees as necessary for that particular school. No, man, that's that's awesome. And there I mean, that's so so much to unpack. And really, you know, uh, Wilkie and I have a nonprofit as well. You know, that's that the, the podcast is really our voice for our nonprofit. But we're almost in the identical space that you are of really, you know, trying to mentor the, the new teachers in, in all those things that I didn't feel like or we didn't feel like teachers are getting prepared for in their college programs. And, and I was just like, I, you know, I was just like you, I, I grew up small town, Wisconsin. And, you know, in 2008, 2009, when I was getting out of college, there just weren't jobs up there. And, and Houston was the first place that I got offered a job and I applied everywhere. I applied, you know, Michigan, Chicago, Wisconsin, all the, all those, but like, Virginia, Washington, D.C., New York, Vegas, Atlanta. I mean, everywhere I applied. And Houston was the first place I, that was the first place I got offered. And I think like you, I had a skill set where I was just, I just believed in myself. So when I got down there, I, I adapted. But I can't tell you how many people, you know, that are have a story kind of like mine where they go somewhere like yours, where they go somewhere different. And like you said, they don't, they don't survive let alone thrive in that environment and and you know the urban schools are the place where we need you know our kids need teachers not just to survive but to be thriving to really you know give them what they need absolutely and i have to admit as well i didn't come down to phoenix on my own i actually came down because i was chasing a young lady that I fell in love with. I ended up marrying her, so I came down in, for good reason. But uh, that's the reason why I relocated. But it's funny because, um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. You know, so coming down here and being able to expand, and they had jobs just readily available here. You know, mm-hmm. like, like you said, in Midwest, it, they weren't like um, at every corner. It felt like when I got here, at every corner they needed a math teacher. And even when I came into the school, they had had, uh, four or five substitute teachers before me because the initial math teacher ended up quitting after a month and a half. And they just had substitute after substitute after substitute. And I ended up coming in mid-year uh, to, to take over for the subs that were in there. Mm. I mean, yeah, and that's, and that's crazy. You know, growing up in the Midwest, I never fathomed that a teacher would just up and leave, you know, mid-year or something like that. But, it, you know, like in Houston, it happens it happens all the time and it's just, Absolutely. it's such a different, you know, and, and we, you know, Wilkie and I have talked a ton and there's a ton of research out there that shows, you know, 
the more continuity a school has with teachers, the longer teachers stay in one position, the better, the better kids do. I mean, cause there's only in, in any profession, but education, especially there's, there's certain things you just can't learn without experiencing it. You have to, you have to make your bones. You have to, you have to do the job and, and stay with it. So I think that's, that that's a super important point I, I think to make is just how, but I mean, it's, it, you know, and like I said, it, it was, it was the economic downturn of 2008, you know, cause I grew up in Wisconsin and, and the story was, you know, you want to be a teacher? Oh yeah, we'll find you a job. And then as the economy kind of started to waver, like 2007, 2008, they're like, Oh, just go sub for a year and then you'll, then you'll find something. But there, there, there were just no, there were no doors to get my foot into anywhere, anywhere in the Midwest. So I was really lucky, but you know, kind of on, on that same vein, you know, especially in the urban area, what do you think the value of a really great teacher is? Oh my goodness. It's, it's community changing because you're basically you sticking around and, and making sure that, um, you're changing the paradigm of what students are used to in those areas. You know, it's a, it's a proven fact that students in lower socioeconomic areas experience inconsistencies at a higher rate than in other areas. And those inconsistencies can manifest as um, a changed address, a changed amount of adults in their life, um, their cell phone number, their, their parents' phone number. Like, there are just so many different things that are always changing. So they come into the school and they have your teacher changing or being inconsistent. And it just proves that their reality of inconsistency is true. So having a teacher that comes in and they, they accept the task and the, the challenge of sticking it out and making sure that they are what they, they need to be for that population, it shows the student a different reality, a reality that they should be experiencing, which is that, you know, there are people out there who won't give up on And And it's, it, it really is a tough thing to think of, at least putting it in those words of this teacher gave up, but it's true. In many instances, the teacher gave up. And it's not really the teacher's fault. 100% is also... Um, there's also fault in in the preparation of, of making sure that teacher has what they need. Um, since there's such a lack in in, um, in in how many teachers there are in the school, sometimes the principal, the coach, the assistant principal are all filling in because they couldn't get subs for teachers who are no longer there. So now we don't have anyone supporting that teacher. So we could say that it's all on the teacher, but it's really not. It's it's a it's a village. It takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to support a teacher and to make sure that teacher has what they need so that they can continue going on. And what it in turn does, um, when, a, when a teacher stays in the classroom and you're showing that student consistency, you're also helping them get to that next level. You're showing them that, um, that there are people that can be constant in their life who help them to be properly prepared because it's not just our job to teach them content, it's also our job to get them ready for the next level. And if that student ends up going to the next level, getting their college degree, getting a master's, getting a PhD, you never know how far that student can go just because we had a consistent teacher in their life that showed them what they should and should not be doing. So and that in turn changes their community. They're, They're changing the trajectory of their family and now they're going back to their own communities with the things that they learned and they're able to change in a community. It all starts with this teacher who made a decision to stick it out. Yeah, and I and I love what you said there about you know community changing because the thing that 
one of the hardest lessons I had to learn when I moved from, you know, Wisconsin to Houston was that not all parents put a value on education the way I felt like, cause I grew up in a really small town. So everybody valued, you know, it seemed that everybody valued education, but I just, I was so blown away by how many parents were disenfranchised with education. And, and the fact is like, you came back to, I, I believe that a parent that doesn't trust in teachers or trust in education is just someone that had a bad, bad experience along the way with a teacher or in their own educational career. And it, it just scares me to think that, you know, it, it, there are a lot of parents and a lot of kids out there who are not getting, you know, that, that reassurance that, you know, education is important, that these teachers are there for you and they're there to help you. And it, I think there's no more powerful way to really change a community than to really get that community to trust and buy in to the fact that those teachers are there to help their kids. And, and that is something that just, especially when I was in Houston, just really scared me to think like, because these kids who come in and they're, you know, if they're middle school, they're high school, and they just don't respect the teacher and they don't care about education, they learn that from somewhere. And what, was, what scares me more than that is what's going to happen when they grow up and have kids and they pass that on to the next generation? I mean, now, now like you're saying, your communities are getting you know, further and further down and away from that, that kind of ideal where there's that symbiotic relationship between good, good communities and good education. Right. And, and even though to piggyback on what you're saying, when a, a student is acting out or doing things that are clearly not supposed to be happening in the class or being disruptive, it, it, it's something that they may have learned from someone else, but it's also a lack of a presence of hope. And I actually speak about that in the book, how important it is to not just instill hope into, into students, but also to redirect and to reignite it when you see that it's starting to fall off. Because a lot of times when we have, and I'm going to say quote-unquote difficult students, because like you said, they, they usually learn it from someone, or it's, it's, it's an issue with their environment more so than the kid itself. But when we have these quote-unquote difficult students, a lot of times they're just students who have an absence of hope. And how do we get them back on the path to where they're dreaming again? You know, because when you go into a classroom um, of, of kindergartners, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're all, oh, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be this. I want to be that. They have dreams in them naturally. They naturally are born and they, and they have this hope in them that somewhere along the, along the way they figure out that their dreams are not attainable. And it's our job to get them back on track with it and a lot of times when they come into our class it, it doesn't just manifest as that it could also be let's say let's say I have a very strict grading policy and a kid comes in he has an F in my class and he knows that no matter if he gets 100% A on the next three test turns in all their homework assignments and does the extra credit they're not going to pass my class why would they try right there would be no reason for them to try and it, that's the absence of hope that we're talking about sometimes that turns into them being, um, you know, an irritant or, or just acting out in class because they don't have hope anymore. Well, and, and kind of a follow-up question to lead into the next one, you know, because we, we want to ask you about your take on the state of education, but I'll kind of frame it around around this too with hope. I mean, 
what happens when you see schools or, you know, teachers where there's a lack of hope? Because I've seen teachers in my experience that you just, their hope for not only their kids, but their hope for education, their hope for a good school year is just gone. And I, and I just wonder if, if you see that too, that there's, you know, sometimes an absence of hope in teachers. Yeah, we see it and it's sad. Um, but it's, it's something that you can't, you can't necessarily always intrinsically motivate yourself to have hope. Sometimes it has to come from an outside source. And I, I firmly believe it's teacher's job, it's a teacher's job to, to, to help a student cultivate hope within themselves, but it's administrators' jobs to do that with teachers. So a lot of times when our teachers are not having this, um, you know, this, this confidence and we can make it through this year and I can get my kids who are not doing so well in this content to the next level, it's our principal's job to, to help bring that back up, up to par. It's also our teachers' peers. You know, a lot of times we see other teachers who we're working with heading for a cliff and we stay within our, our classroom and, you know, hopefully they get back on track, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes they just need to have that peer-to-peer connection or that administrator-to-teacher connection that helps them to instill that, that hope in themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I can think back to my own experience and, um, you know, I was kind of that person when I, 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 I taught at a middle school for four years in Houston and then I got transferred to what, what they call intermediate. So down there, middle school, it was seven and eight and then intermediate was five and six. They've changed it since then. But I got, I got transferred to the school where I met my, my partner in the podcast and the partner in the nonprofit Wilkie. And, and he just recognized that I was kind of that teacher that was just hopeless. And he just started pouring into me and it not, not, not just changed, you know, my trajectory as a teacher, but changed my trajectory as a person. I think that's so important. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, overall. I I would even go, I would even go further than that with, um, the way that, I got advice from, I coach basketball as well. My wife and I have a, a, a basketball team. It's a mentoring program, but it is basketball. And um, I went into the season this year, actually, and we were really, we really wanted to get the victory. You know, so we set goals in the beginning of the year. And at, one of the goals was for us to win three tournaments, at least three of our eight tournaments that we entered in for the summer. Uh, we got to a point where we weren't going to get three victories in the tournaments. And there was a gentleman that came to one of our games. He's one of the parents or one of the players' uncles. And he told me, you know, you don't always have to keep the same goals. Like if you make a goal and you see that you're not going to get there, try to restructure it, go back to the table and see what you need to do to modify. But then also, um, you know, count the small victories as goals as well. You know, a lot of times for us as teachers, I know for myself, I wanted it to be 80%. We want an 80% mastery in every standard. We want an 80% mastery every test that we have, you know, on average for the class. If we're not getting there and we're not, if we're getting to the closest to the end of the year and I'm losing that hope, then maybe I need to set new goals, set smaller goals for our, our students to achieve. That way we can have something else that we're trying to get to. Yeah, and I just, and, and I look at, and uh, right, I don't look at, I, I think about what you just said about, you know, setting goals you know, for standards of performance and those things. And, and 
I, I just, from my experience, and I'm sure you've experienced it too, that sometimes that can be a real slippery slope when you try to set those, you know, targets that are not based on people. Because like you said, you, you got to change your goals when you realize who you have and, you know, whether it's a basketball team or whether it's a group of students or, or myself as a teacher, you know, you got to be able to say like, we're learning about each other as people. And I think, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a basketball team or a a group of students, you have to learn about each other as people. And, And I think goal setting is super important, but you know, when you set an arbitrary goal, like like that, uh, uh, you know, everybody's going to get a certain percentage on this particular test. It doesn't take into account that person or what that person's particular skills are. I really, exactly. you, you know, and, and I get, and we all need to have standards and we have to have data and, and those type of things. But I really like what you said that, you know, we need to be flexible in our goals and adjust them. And I, and I think that could be one of the greatest skills we could pass down to kids is the understanding that, you know, you want to set goals, but on the same token, you have to be reflective and honest with yourself exactly. about, about what your goals are and, and what you need to do to achieve them. <laughs> exactly. So we, you talked a little bit more about the, uh, the urban connection project, but could you just kind of elaborate on a little more of, of the genesis of how it started and, and exactly you know, what you're trying to do out there with it. So the Urban Connection Project is, we, we are education consultants, or consultants, uh, and that's, I guess, if you had to put a title with it, but what we are actually doing is we work specifically with schools and school districts to help prepare their teachers to work with inner city students. Um, in particular, at Title One schools, some sometimes we do work with charter schools as well, it just depends on um, on, on which school actually needs us to come in to, and work with them, but everything is customized as well. So the things that we work with one school on, we would never take this program that we work with school A on, take it to school B and say, hey, it works for school A, it will work for you guys. Because every school is different, every population is different. Even if they're in the same school district, they may be servicing different populations. So we never want to go and tell them that, hey, it worked over this, it'll work over here. So what we do is we work with the administration. We first... Um, pick the lens of administration to see what they feel like the most important aspect of teacher support uh, will be necessary for the upcoming year. We then do our own observations and things if we are able to do so. Sometimes we work with schools in the summertime and the school is not going on, so it's difficult to do that. But if we are able to get in and to do our own observations, our own needs assessment, then we do that. We come back to the table. We like to meet with even the, the leadership team. Some schools do have a leadership team to see what their lens is. We come back to the table and we put it all together to create a plan and a program moving forward to, to work with the, the teachers. Now, one thing is we never come in and say, hey, we're the experts. You guys don't know anything. Listen to what we have to say and do it. You'll be great. Um, we, we firmly believe that there are so many experiences out there and so much um, There's so many people who have things that they do well in their class that I never did. So we want to come in. We want to learn from from people. We want to collaborate. We just want to be a part of that team for teacher support. And uh, we target specifically inner city schools because a lot of times they're understaffed and overpopulated. So you have, you know, let's let's say a school is blessed to have a teacher in every classroom. And one of those teachers is gone for a day and they can't find a sub. So now a lot of times what they do is they take those kids and they spread them out amongst 
of the other classrooms. Mm -hmm. There have been times when we walk into a classroom and there are 45 students in there. Mm -hmm. You know, and what, how can we support that teacher, especially because the principal may, and the, the coach, they're being pulled in so many different directions. Parents need, need attention. Um, other teachers may need attention. There may be testing time. And so that's where we come into play. We're non-evaluative. So nothing that we do is going to be put on a mid or end of year review. And a lot of times that lets some of the guards down with the teachers. And then we're also able to have some of those authentic conversations that sometimes they wouldn't have with someone who's evaluating them. So really we're a liaison between administration and the teacher population, but it's really just a teacher support group. And that looks different depending on what school we're at. I would say the most um, common thing that we're asked to service is cultural competency and cultural responsiveness. Mm -hmm. And what we believe is we have three different areas in which we service. So the first one is systems. The second one is relationship building. And then the last one is the academic aspect. So we like to create a, a plan and program that incorporates those three to some degree. Yeah, and, and I, I just... There's a bunch of follow-up questions I want to ask. I'm just trying to think of the right uh, the right order. I know I so, so you talked about you know different teachers' experiences, um, and and I think what you mean is is not just their academics experience, but their but their life experiences. So, how how do you help teachers not just see that those experiences? are theirs, but, but really help them see the value in, in sharing those experiences with their kids. Cause I know, uh, you know, a word we always use is authenticity. Um, when, when you're dealing with your kids and you're presenting yourself and I think our experiences are, are our most authentic selves. So how do you help teachers really see like, Hey, my experiences matter and, and I can share them with my kids. Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, for us, coaching is an aspect of what we do, so we do have to sometimes coach someone into believing in themselves and believing that what they bring to the table is important, but um, a lot of times you have to take a, a teacher who doesn't quite know that yet and show them how the people who influenced them when they were younger were the ones that were the most open, the ones you could connect with the most, and you can't connect with someone who, who has a guard up all the time. So a lot of times with teachers who are not quite seeing their own importance in their experiences, it, it's, it's, honestly, it's really hard to, to just say like, hey, I, I just do this one thing and then the, the teacher's mm -hmm. great. You know, it, it, sometimes it's a conversation that we just have to have where we're talking about it and, and, and giving them the chance to try it out. We're right. really big on, hey, try this out and see how it works. We're not going to tell you something to say, you do this 100%, it's going to work 100% of the time. A lot of times you have to try it, you have to see what failed, you have to see how to modify it to make it work. And one of those things is try letting your guard down, letting your kids see what, well, who you are as a person. Honestly, you may have your most quote-unquote difficult student who found out that you played basketball when you were younger, and they play basketball now, and they're really excited about that. They may find out that, that you want a spelling bee, and spelling is a big thing to them, and they would have never connected with you if you didn't share that. So we really uh, we really try to, to explain how important it is for someone to just show who they are, and because that can create connections um, with whatever their student population is. But at the same time, it's a decision that, that a teacher has to make to let their 
narrow it down and just show who they are to their students. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and like you said, it, it's not something that is easy. It takes a ton of work. But I guess the, the follow-up to that then is, you know, from, from your perspective, both as a te- having been a teacher and a consultant, where do you think or, or what do you see as our, our teachers coming into the profession, especially in the urban areas? You know, where are they lacking in terms of their preparation, you know, that they would have gotten in a college program? So, the example I give often is let's say you were, you know, you randomly, you live in America, you randomly decide, I want to move to Italy. So, when you make the decision to move to Italy, you're not just going to pick up, fly there, plant yourself, and that's that. You're going to look up the language, you're going to look up a dialect. You're going to see the best area, the best areas to live in. You're going to identify, you know, what what type of experience you want to have when you're there. You're going to prepare yourself for that country that you're going to enter in. A lot of times we're teaching in communities that we didn't grow up in, but we do not give that same preparation. We should be looking up what what type of community it is. What is, what is respect to them? Because a lot of times uh, culture is is culture dictates what respect is and what is what norms are. And if we go into that culture and we're not quite aware of them, then we could step on someone's toes without even knowing it. For example, and I'm going to give a personal example. I was teaching, um, where I taught that it was mostly Hispanic in, there, in, in Phoenix, and one of the parents came in and they had some food. Now, I was not hungry. <laughs> they, they asked me, Mr. Campbell, would you like a plate? And I said, um, oh, thank you, I appreciate it, but no thank you, right? And I was just being genuine. If where I'm from, if I'm not hungry, I don't eat. It's simple as that. It's not disrespectful at all. But what I found out was that in that community, if you deny food that someone offers you, it is seen as disrespectful. Right. And I didn't even know it. But how would I have known that, you know, if, if I didn't take the time to, you know, to study the community that I'm going in? And obviously that's just a, a one example. But there are a lot of different things that could happen with going into a community that you haven't prepared for and then expecting to be ready for it. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, things that someone can do to try to make sure that they're ready for what they'll be encountering. Mm. Yeah, I really also, too, really want to come back uh, to to this idea that you have that um, it takes a village to educate a, a child. And I, and I think we kind of have all have a uh, an understanding of, of what that means. But, but to you and in what you teach and in what you see – what does that look like? Because I think we all have an understanding that that's a goal, but I think it's not as easy to really understand and practice what that looks like. Hmm. There's a quote, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this correctly, but it's something like a, a child who is only educated at school is an uneducated child. Yeah. I think, have you heard that quote before? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, okay, so I'm not, I'm not just saying random things, okay. I heard that quote for the first time about three weeks ago, and it really resonated with me, and I thought about myself and what I encountered and what I did at school compared to what I did at home. You know, I come home, and my mother was an educator, so she gave me so many different tools and things that I needed in order to be successful going into the school. Um, a lot of times, our, our experiences outweigh our knowledge gained. And 
I mean, like, let's go back, let's go into the corporate world. Your experience weighs more than whatever degree you have. Mm. So I, if, if I go into interview for a job and I have a master's, but I have no experience, and then a master's, let's say it takes six years, and I'm going against someone who has six years of experience in that profession, they are in a different position than I'm in. And why is that? It's because experiences teach you just as much as whatever you're learning in the classroom. So what they're seeing outside of class, what they're experiencing outside of class, is just as, as important as what's being taught in class. And to have more than one person telling them anything is huge. I, I can't tell you how many times uh, I tell my wife something, or she tells me something, and we're only hearing it from each other, and then I hear it from my brother, or she hears it from her sister, and then now she gets it, or now I get it. And mm. it's like, what? I told you this last time. I, I told you this, these exact same words, and it did not make sense. But yeah. now that you hear it from someone else, it makes sense. Yeah. And that's not a knock to anybody. That's just how humans are. Yeah. You know, when you hear something from more than one source, you're more apt to believe it. And that doesn't mm. make it a bad thing. It just means that we need a village. We need it. Not we want. We need a village to be as involved as possible in helping to raise that child. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny because I can think of, you know, the the friends that I have who there are just certain friends who who just know the right way to talk to me to make me understand. And and, and, like, and, and like you said, there are certain and I think as a teacher, how many times I thought the more I told the kids something the more likely they were to understand it. But it wasn't about that. It, you know, cause at some point they're going to tune you out and it's just yeah. going to become it, to them. It's as much as white noise, but the more people they hear it from and whether it's, you know, me and another teacher or, uh, you know, a teacher and a parent or gosh, the, some of the best ones are when they hear it from a teacher, but then they hear it from one of their peers as well. Like exactly. those are, those are the those are the money situations, but I, I really, you know, am am learning and kind of growing and understanding, you know, how how that community and um, I think back to the to the documentary Waiting for Superman where they talked about, you know, it's it's sort of there's there's this idea that you know failing failing schools can be blamed on failing communities, but they talk about how there's research that says it's potentially the other way around that that failing schools are creating failing communities. And I just, you, you can't help, but you just can't deny the link between the communities and the schools. It's, yeah. you can't. Yeah. And it's not, that's not to say that it's impossible for a student to get there, but the odds are much higher if we get everyone involved. Well, yeah. And, you know, we were talking um, a little bit before we got on about how LeBron James has just opened up you know, his own school in, in Akron, but, and I'm not trying to knock LeBron James at all, but you know, it's only right now this year, second and third graders. And that's gotta be, you know, a very small portion of the kids in Akron who really need that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, we, we, just because we have a, you know, those bright spots in, in communities doesn't mean we can stop. We need to make sure that or do as much as we can to make sure every kid is getting, you know, that, that education and that, like you said, that experience that really, you know, can change communities and, and change, you know, the, the outlook that people have in those communities. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I couldn't agree more. So to talk a little bit, um, about 
confessions of an inner city teacher and you know what what message do you hope teachers get out of it when they read it you know um there's so many opportunities to like toot your own horn in life that you sometimes you get them you just take them i really want to i want you guys to know that this book is not a you know hey read this and you're gonna be perfect at everything this is honestly just me sharing my story and the reason I share my story is because there is an absence of the transfer of knowledge from teacher to teacher um, as far as like prior to current. So what I mean by that is when I came into the classroom, I had no chance to speak to the teacher who was in the classroom before me. And that teacher may have gone through some of the experiences that I was going to face. They may have conquered some. They may have made some mistakes. But either way, I'm not able to learn from the person who was there before me. I really am going through a lot of these things and relearning and re-going through some of the, the things that, that have already been conquered in some instances. And one theory that I have is uh, the burning of books, like as a form of power or a form of flexing your power. A lot, a lot of times in our history, we saw burning of books as, or, or the reason why they did burning of books was either to maintain power or to gain power. And what it did, what it did was it created a disconnect of generation to generation. So you may go into um, a community or into a country, burn their books, so that way they don't know what type of royalty they came from. They don't know what what importance they had on the world. They're really starting from from scratch, and it leads to it, it leads to destruction. It can lead to destruction. I feel like in education we have that same thing going on. Just since it's an absence of the transfer of knowledge, it can lead to destruction. So I, I wrote the book really just to share my story. I'm very transparent in it. I speak about my successes, the things I did well, and not and it's for the reader to um, to go even further with my successes. I talk about my failures, the things that I wish I did differently. That way, you can learn from them and navigate your way around the mistakes that I made. But I also speak about other characters I met along the way. There's a a woman in the book named Miss Welch. Now, Miss Welch was um, Caucasian, about five foot eight, five foot nine, blue-eyed, blonde-haired woman, very, very impactful with the students, and was an extremely good teacher. She was able to connect with students that she looked nothing like. She was able to uh, relate to them very well, more uh, better than most teachers I've ever seen. There's also a character named Mr. Mansell. He was Caucasian male. He was about six foot, maybe six one. Um, no, about 200 pounds. He wasn't a small guy at all, but he was the one who ended up quitting in two weeks. And a lot of times people think, if I look like them, or if I have the stature, if I'm a man, if I'm a woman, I can connect. And outward appearance is the most shallow way to connect with someone that exists, period. And once you get past that outward appearance, you have to have something beyond that to help to connect with the uh, the students that you're working with. So I included both of them in the book because I wanted um, the reader to be able to see that you're you're going to be successful and impactful in the community, not because of what you look like, but because of the preparation and the things that you did to make sure that you're ready for the students you're working with. And that's really the reason why I wrote this book. Mm. You know, and, and that's what I've really loved about the podcast is you know we're we're approaching our 100th episode and now we've interviewed we've interviewed 60 plus teachers and it's just the the authenticity of the story and just sharing 
the good and the bad because we've not had one teacher come on here and say, gosh, I'm so perfect and this is what I've done and this is what I – and and I think there's a misconception, especially among the new teachers and it, I know it was for me that this mentality, well, you know, you just find somebody who made it work and you make it work. It's it's not that tough. It's, you know, it's – I always felt like it's it shouldn't be that hard of a profession to, to be successful in but it's incredibly difficult and it's incredibly challenging and – there are going to be up ups and downs, and I think the more we can share the authentic story of, hey, like this worked and this didn't, and it's okay right. that it's okay that that didn't work. I, I think exactly. that's I think I think that's powerful. So we really, really appreciate you sharing that and and, and appreciate the book. So. Um, definitely want to be respectful of your time and, and appreciate the fact that you got going, things going on today. So we're going to get into kind of our wrap up questions. So you can take these either from an, uh, a teacher perspective or just a general life perspective. So, um, what, what's the best advice you've been given and who is that person that gave it to you? The best advice I've been given was that I was put on this earth for a specific reason that no one else on earth could do. Mm. And if there was someone on earth that could do what I was put here to do, then I wouldn't have been put here. And I feel like a lot of people don't understand their purpose. I think purpose is a huge, huge thing. And my mentor, his name is uh, Dr. Joe Johnson, and I've worked with him and known him for about 10 years now, and he has a book out called Pursue Your Purpose, Not Your Dreams. And it's, it's really big on just going after what you were put on earth to do. And I think it's insanely important that even our educators understand that um, we are the connector between the past and the future. Our current and our present is necessary to connect the past with the future. And we are the, the, the key link and when you figure out your place on earth and your place in whatever it is that you're doing, then you no longer think about self and you start considering everybody else around you. So for teachers, that comes into the aspect of going into the classroom and, and recognizing why you're going in there to begin with. You know, you're, if you're purpose-driven and you really have done some thinking and you realize that, hey, it's my purpose to be in this classroom or to be an educator. And then you get there and then you end up changing your mind. There shouldn't be any outward sor- outside sources that change the trajectory of your purpose. If that's your purpose, then stick with it. Know that whatever mistakes and shortcomings you have are just lessons that you needed to learn in order to get to the next level. Stick it out and make sure that you keep going forward and keep pushing because you are completely necessary and needed for our earth to continue moving forward. It's mm, awesome. Yeah, I can't can't argue with that at all. That's I mean, I, I, I I'm I'm very much of that that belief, and I and I know Wilkie is too. That you know, we all have really a specific purpose, and there are certain things that we can do that only we can do. And I'm, I'm, I'm big on that. And I think every teacher has the opportunity and, and can do things that are special and can do things that no one else can. So, um, so if you could give one piece of advice to a teacher that was struggling, what would it be? I would tell them to purchase my book. No, I'm joking. <laughs> 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 it's joking. It's joking. No, um, <laughs> to someone 
struggling, um, the best piece of advice that I would say is to know that you're not in it alone. You have a lot of people who are around I me mean, because a lot of times, just as humans, we, we pay attention to the negative over the positive, and it's a natural thing. Um, you know, we, we come home from work, and the first thing we tell our spouse is what happened to us. We don't tell them about the great things that happened. You know, it's just a natural thing for us, but that also um, that also makes us believe that we may be in it alone, but there are a lot of people who want to see us do well and who will step out of their way to help us if we open our mouth. A lot of times, uh, my pastor even said, said the, that issues remain issues longer in secrecy. So when you're having these problems and you're having things that you need to work on, open your mouth, talk about it, ask somebody about it because your community is behind you. And the only way to, to really get to that next level is, is if we make sure we're using our community properly. I like that. That's good. So, uh, what's the uh, what's the best book or a, a, a book you've rec- you would recommend that you've read, say, in the last year or so? Um, there's a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution, and it really hit home for me. Um, the very first discipline it talks about is goal setting and how we naturally make a lot of goals. So as humans, obviously, we know how to multitask very well, but we like to transfer that into our goal-setting process. So we create, you know, six or seven different goals. You know, it's, it's 2018. I want, I have all these goals I want to meet. But what the book talks about is, um, at least the first discipline, is to cut down your goals. If, if you have too many goals and things that you're trying to achieve, You may become really good at all of them, but you will never reach the level of greatness or excellence that you will want to reach in each one because you're so spread. So it talks about, you know, cutting down your list of goals to just one or two, focusing on those, achieving those, and allowing everything else to build upon what those first or what that first or first two happen to be. And I would say that that's that's probably my favorite book in the past year, at least. Mm, Nice. Nice. So, um... What what would be your proudest accomplishment to date? Um, honestly, it's I would say it's the book. If we're talking professionally, I would say it's um our organization. Obviously, is is a huge thing for us to step out on faith and to to uh, to know that that we have a service that is needed. Um, it, it's really big for us just to to be able to to serve in the capacity in which we serve, you know, because that's really what our organization is. It's, 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 we, we serve, you know, in a sense. We just go in, we do what the school needs, we, we recommend things and we serve. So I'm very, very proud of that. Um, the book is something that I wanted to write um, for a long time. And I'm not a writer. My degree's in math. So for me to write a book, it, I feel like it, it, if, if I was more uh, literacy-based as far as, like, what I'm interested in, it probably would have taken a year and a half less than what it took me to write this book. But um, it took me about two and a half years. I actually wrote um, about 40 pages. They got lost. Somehow, some way got lost. I couldn't find the file anymore and had to start over. So that added the extra two or extra uh, almost year for how long it took. But once it came out and um, the reviews that I'm getting on, on how it's helped teachers, um, just, just, just me feeling like... Um, like I lived in my purpose. I released the book and now it's actually helping people out. It's something I'm extremely proud of. Mm, awesome. 
So before we ask you the, the final question, if people want to connect with you and check out the book and everything you're doing, what's the what's the best ways for them to do that? So go to our website, theurbanconnectionproject.org. There's information about my wife and I and uh, the things that we do. Um, I'll tell you, my wife is just, she is a firecracker. She's like on fire for education. She has all these great things that are coming out. The book is actually our first product. We do have other things that are being released. And um, so you can go there and learn more about it. There's also a way for you to order the book. If you want bulk ordering options, we did have um, a few schools and school districts who wanted to purchase for their teachers. We have a discount price on our website, so you can just click on the book link, and uh, it'll give you more information about that. If you want to skip all of that and just want to get straight to it, you can go to Amazon and order it directly. Just type in Confessions of an Inner City Teacher, and it should pop up. Um, our Instagram page, The Urban Connection Project, and then also my page, uh, specifically because I do public speaking engagements and also, um, you know, book signing events, etc. is Justin underscore A underscore Campbell. Hmm. Perfect. Perfect, man. So before I ask you the final question, I just want to, again, show my uh, appreciation and gratitude for uh, for you coming on and spending some time today. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I, I was disappointed prior that Wilkie wouldn't, wasn't able to be on, but I'm I'm feeling like we might have to maybe not record it for the podcast, but have a have a little call and and connect with you and your wife and talk about your journey and you know kind of what we're going through because you know we're we're kind of at the same stage where you are where where we're releasing our first uh, stuff we're we're doing a a two year online mentoring program for fifty teachers with zero to two years experience. We just opened up the applications today, so. Um, oh wow! It's, it's yeah. Thank you. It's a it's a program we've been working on for two years, um, but we would love to be able to stay connected with you guys and just kind of understand how you built and and those type of things. But again, we appreciate you just coming on and and sharing your story though too. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. So f- final question: um, What do you want your lasting legacy to be? I believe that either, like, let's let's say you go to a um, a funeral. Either you decide what people have to say about you at their funeral, or they decide themselves. And for me, I wanted to leave a legacy that I decided to leave. I felt like um, my wife and I felt the same way. Our impact on education. We wanted to have more control over how many people we could impact, how many students we could impact, et cetera. And that's the reason why we started an organization. We wanted to, you know, touch as many lives as possible. And that's what I really want. Um, I want people to look at me as an influence. A lot of times, I'm African-American. A lot of times in, in our society, the most um, successful people if they're in our neighborhoods, if, if it's a lower socioeconomic area, then it's more than likely a drug dealer who makes a lot of money, has flashy cars and, and, and gold chains and things. Or they look on TV, they see rappers or basketball players or football players. And that's typically what we see as far as people who were successful coming out of our neighborhoods. I want to be someone that they can point at and say, but what about Justin Campbell? He made it out, and he didn't have to do any of those things. And I wanted to spark the interest in so many different youth that they now see that there are other ways to be successful and other ways to make it without having to go those routes. And that's really what I want. I, what I want my legacy to be is um, 
a legacy that inspires many other legacies to emerge. That's awesome, man. Justin, super duper appreciate your time and thank you for coming on the podcast.